Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. Have you ever turned the TV on or opened up social media or been in a conversation in which politics was brought up or something about the government? My guess is yes, especially if you have a social media, because as we know, there's basically no avoiding any sort of political something on social media. One of the things that I realized last night as I was kind of thinking about this is that I've had a social media account for half of my life. Uh, when that, that's, you know, for some of you, social media has been around your entire life. For some of you, it's a very small fraction of your life. But for me, half of my life, I've had a Facebook account. I got one when I was 14, and I'm coming up on 28. So I've had one for a long time, uh, but half of my life. And a consequence of this is that I've never really known politics or government really outside of social media. And so I can't really speak to what it was like before then. But what I do know is what it's like now with social media, and it's that you can't avoid it. There's always some opinion. There's always something being said. And whether you have a social media account or whether you just hear these sorts of things in conversation around you, the question I have for you this morning is, what goes through your head? What is your approach to these situations when politics is brought up, when government is brought up, when something is said, whether it's a fact or whatever, about our governing officials? What is the framework that you bring to the table and whether you're going to respond or if you are, how are you going to respond? And in particular, how are you going to respond to these governing officials? How are you going to respond in light of what they've done or what someone else is saying about them. These are some of the questions that I've had to really wrestle with, especially just, you know, with social media just throwing this sort of stuff at me. I've really had to wrestle with some confusion, with some things that I did not understand in terms of what did God really want me to do in this area when it came to responding to rulers. And so it is my goal to talk about these three different areas that I thought of that I have sought clarity in how we respond to rulers and how we respond in submission and how we respond in criticism and how we respond in prayer. But I kind of realized this is way too much for one, so I'm going to save in prayer for next time. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on focusing, we're going to focus on talking about how to respond to rulers in submission and in criticism. And thanks to Travis a couple of weeks ago, I'll get to not, I will not have to cover the submission in, in so much detail as I might would otherwise. But we got to get first things first. And the first thing first is that God rules. In 1 Samuel 8, the children of Israel come to Samuel and they say, give us a king like all the other nations. And Samuel was upset about this, but God tells Samuel, listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And one of the things that we have to make sure that we are not doing is making the same mistake as the children of Israel in seeking another king over us. That we are actually in making sure that God is first and foremost our king. That as Christians, Jesus Christ is our Messiah, our Christ, our king, the one who has all authority over us. And we recognize this first and foremost well, we're going to get all sorts of things backwards when we try to think about how we're going to respond to rulers. And it goes well beyond that as well. Because in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, we have 
something that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10 when talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in Isaiah it says, How delightful on the mountains are the feet of one who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news, same word for gospel, of happiness, who announces salvation, says to Zion, Your God reigns. The fact of the matter is, is that when we skip over the fact that it is our God who reigns, that it is God who kings, not only do we get things messed up with rulers, we mess up the gospel. Our gospel is bankrupt when it is not grounded on the fact that it is our God who reigns. And so we cannot skip over this. We cannot miss it. We have to establish it firmly. It is our God who reigns. No other human, no other person, no other thing. It is our God who reigns. And that affects the way that we respond to rulers and the way that we think about them, especially when it comes to submission. There are three passages in the New Testament that talk about, or there's probably more than three, but there are these three passages that talk about how we should be submissive to our rulers. And we do this in light of the fact that God is the one who rules. We're not going to read all three, but we are going to read this third one, 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17, where it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or as to governors as sent by him for the punishments of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you silence the ignorance of foolish people, act as free people, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I want you to notice how it says here that you're supposed to submit yourself for the Lord's sake. It's not for the governing authority's sake. It's not for any other person's sake. It's for the Lord's sake that you submit to these people. This is because our governing authorities, they do not have authority in and of themselves. It is not inherent to them to be authoritative over us, but it is because God gives them that authority that they have it to begin with. That's what Romans 13 tells us, among other passages. And so we have to make sure that we are remembering when we submit to our rulers that it has nothing to do with what we like or what we enjoy, but it's for the Lord's sake that we submit to them. And notice the other impact that this has here is the power of submitting for the Lord's sake to these authorities. It says that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, there's a defense for God's people that comes from submitting yourself to the authorities for God's sake. You defend the church. You defend our honor. You defend, you defend God's name when you submit for that reason. And so it is not just an act of weakness. It is an act of power to declare to the world that I submit to these people not because they are inherently authoritative, but because my God is authoritative. And he calls for me to listen to these people. And one thing that I think sometimes when we read these passages, we may get an idea that he's writing to people who have very cheery and wonderful you know, relationships with their governments. But this is not necessarily the case. Take Romans chapter 13, for instance. In the crowd, in Romans chapter 16, we find out that Priscilla and Aquila are there. Now, you may not remember, but Priscilla and Aquila are, are met. We meet them in Acts chapter 18, where they meet Paul. And they meet Paul in Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome by their governing officials. So here is Paul writing to the people in Rome where Priscilla and Aquila have made their way back. And he's telling them to submit. 
You think these people have very rosy relationships with their governing authorities? You think they're very happy with them? I mean, they were once kicked out of their homes by these people. They understand that rulers do evil things. They understand that rulers do foolish and awful things. But here is Paul still telling them, submit, because God has given them authority. And so we have to be wary of our own inclinations to say, well, I don't like this person or I disagree with them, so I'm not going to do what they tell me to do. That's not what it's about. And the people who read the letter of Romans knew that. They were not unaware of this difficult dynamic of, I don't like what they say, and they even say to do dumb things. They knew. They were well aware. They experienced it in ways we haven't. So we have to make sure we get this first. Because God reigns. We listen to. We submit to our rulers. But... As um, Travis talked about last week, there comes a point in time where you have to say, well, I'm not going to. But it's, again, because our God rules, right? In Acts chapter 5, there's a situation where Peter and the apostles are told by these men who they would have respected as their leaders to stop preaching Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Because Jesus, as the one who has all authority on heaven and on earth, told them to go, therefore, and preach the gospel They're going to stop preaching Jesus because their ultimate authority told them to preach Jesus. And so they're not going to stop. They're going to keep going because that's what their God demands of them. No matter what any person says, whether it's someone that God has given them authority, has told them to listen to or not. In Daniel chapter 3, we have a situation where this similar kind of thing happens. Uh, Thank you for the reading this morning, Amen. We had four people introduced to us that we refer to as Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the crowd as a herald for the king announces that whenever there is some music played, they should all bow down and worship this golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has created. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they decide they are not going to bow. And so when the music plays and they do not bow down, they are told they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And this is their response. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods nor worship the golden statue that you have set up. So observe, we have two things at play here. One, we have a command from a king to do a specific thing, and they're supposed to listen to their kings, right? And they also have a threat of death. But because he's telling them to do something that breaks a commandment from the law of Moses to not worship any other god, they're not going to do this. They're not going to bow down and worship the statue or any other king, even at the threat of death. And we have to have the same sort of boldness and faith in our God that whenever someone else, some other king, or we don't have kings, but some elected official here tells us to do something that God doesn't want us to do, We're going to choose God's way instead. Daniel chapter 6 provides another story like this. Daniel's got all sorts of great stories for us to learn from. Daniel chapter 6 is one that most of us know from childhood, where it's about Daniel and the lion's den, where Daniel had gained a reputation with the king of the Medes, and um, men became jealous. 
And so the jealous men sought a way to destroy Daniel. And so they went and they tricked the king into signing a document that said that you cannot pray to anyone at all except for me. Meaning the king says, don't pray to anyone but me for 30 days. Now, when Daniel learned that the document was signed, he entered into his house and in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and offering praise before his God, just as he had been doing previously. Because it didn't matter what this king had said. It did not matter that there was a threat of death. He was going to do what his God demanded. And maybe these examples and what we've said so far between Travis's sermon and then what I've said right here, maybe this is all crystal clear to you. But just in case it's not, because things get confusing for me, okay? And I overthink things, and so I have to think through things very slowly. So I want to, you know, help you think through things slowly with me this morning, because sometimes things still aren't clear to me. And so there's, I want to consider... This dynamic of God tells me to listen to these people, but then there's a time when I'm not supposed to listen to these people. And I think a, a helpful illustration uh, is used by my children. So I have two children currently, a third one on the way. Hopefully that's not news, but if it is, a third one on the way in January. And we um, have Adeline. She's five now. She's the oldest. And Currently, she's also the most responsible. So we don't know, you know, exactly what it's going to be like 10 years from now. But I foresee possibly a situation in which Jesse and I leave the children alone. And we tell Adeline, the oldest and foreseeably the most responsible children, we're leaving. Listen to Adeline. What she says to do, you should do. Now, Adeline does not inherently have authority over her siblings. That is not something that she has. She does not get to just tell them what to do. But when mom and dad leave and say, you listen to Adeline, now out of submission to their parents, the children must listen to Adeline. So when Adeline says, okay, brother, sister, whatever it is, please put your dishes in the sink. You know what mom and dad expect the kids to do? Put the dishes in the sink. Because Adeline told them to, and we gave Adeline that authority. But if, on the other hand, Adeline was to say, okay, brother or sister, let's smear jello all over the television, well, they would know. God, I mean, Dad has been telling us. <laughs> Woo! That was a bad one. Dad has been telling us since we were two years old don't touch the TV. So I'm not going to touch the TV, and I'm definitely not going to smear jello all over it. And by Adeline giving that sort of command, she would be abusing the authority that she would have. She'd be stepping out from underneath the authority that we gave to her and trying to do something that was not allowed and trying to get the kids to do something that they ultimately should not do. And so how would they submit to their parents in the jello on the TV situation? They wouldn't put jello on the TV, even though that's what Adeline said to do. And I think the same sort of situation is the way it is with our governments, where God has given them authority. They are not inherently authoritative, but God gave it to them. And so when they tell us to do something, we should do it. But there comes a time where they're saying, you do this, and it's directly in conflict with what God tells us to do. We're not going to do it. And a helpful phrase for me on this and understanding this is this, that the source of the authority remains greater than the authority. That God as the source of the authority on this earth, he's still greater than it. 
So if some authority on this earth says to do something that goes against the source of that authority, we're not going to do it. We're going to do what the source says. And so there comes a time when we have to say, well, God doesn't want me to do that. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think we're far too eager to look to be in these sorts of situations, right? You see, because this is sort of the picture in my head where we've got what the officials say, and then there's what we want. And there's some overlap here, right? It's not like the officials say to do things, and we always disagree with it. So there's some overlap here. We, we, we agree with some of the things, right? But then there's what God says, and that's ultimately what we should do. It's not what we want all the time. It's not what the officials say all the time. And it's not necessarily even in the overlap of these two. There's just some mix here, right? And the real difficult spot to be is right here, where it's what God says we should do, and it's what our officials say to do, but it's not at all what we want to do. That's the difficult spot to be in. And what we like to do is trick ourselves into thinking that we're actually over here and what the officials say to do, but it's not what God wants us to do. We like to trick ourselves. We like to find rationalizations for, well, you know, I can actually do this because of this. Or we might go and we might see that there's something that we can do to try to get out of it in some way. Find some loophole. Maybe even go find a Bible verse that sounds like it says we shouldn't have to do this. I mean, I've seen this sort of thing. I mean, I have seen politicians and people on Facebook misuse the Bible all the time to try to say what they want to say. I mean, just recently we had, let's see, Isaiah 6 being misused to talk about sending the military when the I, here am I, send me. That, was, that happened. And another person trying to do something about securing elections used First Peter with the making sure you're calling an election is sure. Yeah, I know. If you know First Peter, you know how ridiculous that sounds, right? But people misuse Scripture to get their political end all the time. And we could fall prey to the same thing, where we're sitting right here and what God wants us to do because it's what our officials say and it's not in conflict with his word, and we trick ourselves and we rationalize our way into this situation. And we think that it's you know what we should not do in order to be what in, in God's favor, to do what God wants us to do. So, let's look at Daniel for another example of this. In Daniel chapter 1, we're not going to read all this. It was, again, read by um, Amy this morning. But if you noticed, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent his official, um, called eunuchs in the New King James, I think is what he was reading, uh, to get these people. And notice about midway through here, he says that they're supposed to be looking for youths in whom there was no impairment, who were good-looking, suitable for instruction in every kind of expertise, endowed with an understanding and discerning knowledge. And you had ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king also allotted for them a daily ration of the king's choice food and for the wine which he drank. And he ordered that they be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Okay, I want you to put yourself in, in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes, where here comes this other army, this other kingdom, and now they are telling you to do something. And what they want you to do is be educated for three years in the literature and language of these people, eat this food, and serve in the king's court. What would you do? How would you feel? What would you do? Would you probably maybe see if there's some verse that kind of sounds like you don't have to do one of these things? Is that what you would do? Well, Daniel's a smart man. He can probably do this, right? Let's just take this one. You had this ability to serve in the king's courts. 
Surely Daniel could have gone to his Bible, you know, the law of Moses, and said, well, there's a verse somewhere in here that says that I don't have to do this, right? Oh, sure, there's a verse that kind of sounds like this. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 6 says, For the Lord your God will have blessed you just as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. Look, see, my Bible says they will not rule over me, so I'm not going to serve in this king's court. That's not at all what this verse is trying to convey, that he should not serve in this king's court. But if you wanted to find a biblical passage that seemed to rationalize your way out of this situation, well, here's one that you could use. If you are eagerly seeking, not for God to be king, but for yourself to make your own rules to the extent of twisting his word to get your way, this is exactly the sort of thing you would do. It's the exact sort of thing we see all the time. Let me take this Bible verse and twist it to say what I want it to say so I can do what I want to do. But that's not what Daniel does. No, we know Daniel goes on to be educated for three years in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And he serves in the king's courts, but he does not defile himself with the choice food. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Out of all those things, I'm sure none of them seemed pleasant to him. But what Daniel chose to stand the ground on was the one that he had explicit commands from God about, coming from Leviticus 11, among other places, about the sorts of foods that he was going to eat. And so that's what he stood his ground on. Instead of twisting some other verse to say what he wanted to say or coming up with some other rationalization, he chose to stand where the Bible speaks clearly and decisively. Not coming up with some complex argument for why he doesn't have to do these other things. And I want to notice something else about Daniel's example that I think stands in stark contrast with the sort of thing that we see. He sought permission. He sought permission. I mean, I just want you, if you have a Facebook, you know, when the government says something that nobody likes, well, I'm not going to do that. Oh, I'll show them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, No, no, they're not going to tell me what to do. That's right. That's exactly the sort of thing we see all the time. But what does Daniel do? He, with humility, but boldly, chooses to submit to God and man where he can. He seeks permission. He does it with humility. When we see it, we see people grandstanding. We see people, they're just going to prove themselves to be in the right and the government in the wrong or this politician in the wrong. But that's not what Daniel does. There's humility there. And he uses due process (laughs) instead of just trying to do it his own way. So we need to make sure that when we are considering what our officials tell us to do, that we're humble and that we're actually looking to God to be our king and not ourselves. Because that's where we ultimately end up falling into traps. And we try to rationalize our way out of certain situations where we should be obeying the government, but we'd rather not. Second thing we're going to talk about, and last thing, is responding in criticism. 
How do you respond in criticism? Can you respond in criticism? Is this even allowed? Let's let's talk about that. Because I, I don't know if it's just I don't know if social media has proven that everyone is a critic or if it's made everyone a critic. But I mean if you go on to social media, you just see criticism after criticism after criticism. And now I'm very much in a workplace. I hear it, I hear criticisms all the time, the conversations with people, criticisms. How do, we, how do we think about this? How do we think about the government says something and I don't like it. How am I going to respond? In light of the fact that God is king. We're not skipping over that. In light of the fact that God is king. Well, let's remember what Romans 13 verse 7 says. Pay to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax. Custom to whom custom. Respect to whom respect. Honor to whom honor. That whenever the governing officials say something, even if we don't like it, we have to make sure that we are respectful and honorable. In 1 Peter 2, 17, it says similarly, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We have to make sure that even if we don't like them, and Priscilla and Aquila probably didn't like their officials, that they are respectful. We are respectful and honorable in the way that we talk about them and address them. Again, it's not good enough to just not be disrespectful. It's not good enough to just not be dishonorable. We have to be intentional in the way that we are seeking to be respectful and be honorable. And we have two positive examples of this in the Old Testament. One, again, is Daniel, and another is Nehemiah, where they both speak to their respective kings and say, O king, live forever, or may the king live forever. I mean, they obviously don't think this person is going to live forever, and they don't think this person is their Messiah who's going to reign on high for eternity, but it is an honorable way to address their king, and so they do it. Positive examples of someone intent being intentional to address their dignitaries with honor. Do you do that? If you respond at all, do you do that? Let's look at an example where something goes awry, and Paul, Paul has this example in Acts 23, 3-5, where Paul is the example, I should say. In this situation, Paul is being tried by some, by some Jews, and unbeknownst to him, one of them is a high priest, and he commands Paul to be struck. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law, and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But those present said, are you insulting God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he is the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See, Paul did not realize that this was the high priest. But regardless of that fact, he knows he has messed up by saying, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That is to say, you hypocrites. God's going to strike you. And then he realizes, oh, no, I, I done messed up. Oh, no, rut road. I have gone wrong. Because I know that it is written, you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, what is this that he's quoting? He's quoting Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, where it says, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And it says, speak evil of in uh, Acts, but curse in Exodus. Why is this happening? Acts is coming from Greek. Exodus is coming from Hebrew. Okay? It, underlying, it's the same concept. To curse in the Hebrew to curse is to call for misfortune. It's to call for devastation. It's to call for something evil, bad, atro an atrocity to happen to someone. It would be like saying, God is going to strike you. 
would be a curse because you're calling for devastation. You're calling for something bad to happen to this person. And so Paul knows he's messed up because that's exactly what he just did to a ruler of the people. He called for devastation. And I think so we can see some clear boundaries here in terms of what we need to not do when we are responding to rulers. That we cannot call for misfortune, we cannot be disrespectful, and we cannot be dishonorable. We have to make sure that we respond in ways that are not going beyond this. And that's with your t-shirts, that's with your bumper stickers, that's with your posts on social media, whether you're liking it, sharing it, commenting on it in favor of it, you have to make sure that you are not doing these things, okay? So let's, let, what are some examples of this? Six years ago, I arrived in Norman, Oklahoma. I know nothing about Norman politics currently. I knew even less six years ago. But when I got on the campus, I remember there was a person who had a shirt that said, this is why we can't have nice things with a picture of the Norman mayor's face on it. Now, that was hilarious. I thought it was so funny. I still think it's funny, but guess what it also is? Disrespectful. It's dishonoring. I mean, it's flippant. No regard whatsoever for the fact that this is an elected official and because of God has authority. Just dishonoring. Bumper stickers. I've seen it twice now. Driving behind a car with a bumper sticker that says explicative Joe, the word that rhymes with Joe that I won't say in the presence of children. Right on the car. Another bumper sticker when President Trump was in office. Any functioning adult, 2020. Disrespectful. Dishonoring. Calling for harm to come their ways. These are the sort of things we see all over town. I mean, you don't have to look very far. Just go on campus and drive around. You'll see it. Drive down the interstate. You'll see it. People, they have no regard, no respect for these people. So if you're the sort of person here this morning, maybe you wouldn't have the bumper sticker, but maybe you'd share the Grandpa Joe and the Uncle Joe stuff. Maybe you'd share the memes that say that. Maybe when Trump was in president, you thought it was hilarious when he was called a clown. If that's who you are, the scriptures are clear. You need to repent. You should not be disrespectful, even if you don't like them. Even if you think they are being foolish, you cannot be disrespectful and flippant towards these people in the way we like and share counts. We cannot ignore these things. We have to be intentional in the way we respond in criticism. And so the question still remains, can you respond in criticism? And you may be thinking, well, of course I can respond in criticism. The First Amendment protects my right to do that, right? Well, the First Amendment protects your right to do all sorts of things that you shouldn't do. We are under God, not the Constitution, okay? We listen to what he has to say. And so if he doesn't want us to respond in criticism, it doesn't matter what the First Amendment says. We can't respond in criticism. But for those of you who are like me, who maybe you're not given to um, calling names and stuff like that. Not that I'm better than you. That's your struggle. I have plenty of other struggles. That's not what I'm given to. What I am given to is criticism. Meaning I am criticized, yes, but that's not what I meant. I like to be critical. And I have opinions. 
And so the question I have is, can I voice them? Can I say them in any way, shape, or form? And the answer, I believe, is yes, because we see our Lord and Savior do it. In Matthew chapter 23, just after talking about how the scribes and Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, therefore whatever they say, do it. He has acknowledged that they are in a position of authority, but he goes on to call them hypocrites and to rebuke them for their hypocritical behavior. In Luke chapter 13, verse 32, he calls Herod a fox, which is to basically call him out for being conniving. Our Lord and Savior was not afraid and did not hold back from criticizing people who had authority and had power. And he wasn't the only one. John the Baptist did this as well. He told soldiers, which uh, part of their duties would have been like modern-day cops, okay? He told soldiers to be content with their wages, not to harass people and not to exploit people. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he told Herod, an official, that he was wrong for having his brother's wife. What we see these people doing is they name sin as sin. And there's two really clarifying examples I want to look at uh, to sort of finish off this responding and criticism. Two examples that I think are very helpful as we consider what it means to criticize, to respond in criticism, acknowledging the fact that God is king. How can we do this? Let's look at an example of Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 11 where Jesus is undergoing trial, the unjust trial, and he's before Pilate. And Jesus answers Pilate and says, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who has handed me over to you has the greater sin. Okay, so where's the rebuke? Well, it's kind of implicit, right? By saying someone else has the greater sin, he is telling Pilate that he has actually sinned. And so there is a sin that he is calling out here. Now, this example is very instructive because this passage stands in tension with another thing that talks about Jesus in Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 33, where a passage of scripture is read about Jesus. And it says, he was led like a sheep to slaughter and like a lamb that is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will describe this generation for his life is taken away from the earth. Notice the tension here. Like a land that is silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth, referring to Jesus. But then what do we read in John 19? Jesus opening his mouth, right? But not only opening his mouth, responding in criticism of this person, saying that he has sinned. Okay? So there's some tension here. I hope you can feel it. Verses in tension are very clarifying when you dig in. Okay? There's clarification to come from this. How can Jesus be like a lamb that is silent, but also voice criticism at the same time? And it's in the manner in which he did it. It's obviously not about him opening his mouth or not. It's about the manner. It's a, it's a simile. It says like or as. It's, a, it's a, um, like a metaphor. It is a figure of speech that he is like a lamb that does not open his mouth. It's talking about the meekness and the humility through which Jesus underwent a trial that was unjust from the beginning. And naming the sin of one of those judges does not go against humility. And we see this clarified in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 24. For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin or was any deceit on his mouth, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. 
while suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself brought our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. He did not respond to threats with threats. He did not respond to insults with insults. And he got plenty of those things during this unjust trial. But instead, he named sin as sin. He did not seek his own and he trusted the righteous judge. That's how he responded in criticism to his rulers. And I think this stands in sharp contrast with the way I want to and the way I see it happening. I mean, how often do we see people trying to speak the truth meekly when they are criticizing their officials or the politicians, as opposed to trying to get likes and shares and build their own platform? How much are they not seeking their own? I mean, it happens all the time. They're just trying to get their own, they build themselves up. I'm going to crit- or if they're not trying to build themselves up when they criticize this person, they're trying to elevate their own party or their own team, right? Let me criticize this person to make my person look better. How often do they name sin as sin? And they want God to be the righteous judge. No, no, no. What you see all the time is I'm the one who's actually the righteous judge. I know what's right and what's wrong, and I know this person needs to go down. That's the sort of criticism we see over and over again. But that's not the sort of criticism that Jesus gives. He names sin. And we should always name sin. It doesn't matter who it is. Your wife, your child, your friend. Sin is sin. You name it. And when it's your ruler, you do it respectfully and honorably. One last example is Daniel chapter 4. Back to Daniel. Daniel's got some similarities with us because he's living in a kingdom that it is not his own, and he's living under a king who is not in covenant with God. But he has a criticism for him here. He says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Wipe away your sin by doing righteousness and your wrongdoings by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Notice the way that he criticizes him. Notice some of the things that are said here that he is naming the fact that he has sinned. I mean, this took guts, okay, to stand before the king, the one who decides if you live or die right here, right? And you're going to say, wipe away your sin and your wrongdoings. And then he's going to tell him what he needs to be doing differently. I mean, that takes guts. That takes confidence. That takes trust in God. And the way he does this is, again, named sin is sin, but he speaks up for the defense of others, and he does it with the hopes of the person's repentance and prosperity. And again, this stands in sharp contrast to the sorts of criticisms and ridicule we see all the time from other people, even maybe your own page, meaning your post or your mouth. How often do you see or do you speak up in criticism, and it's for the defense of others instead of yourself? In particular, in Daniel's case, people who did not have a voice with the king and who were the lowest of the lows, the poor. How often do you speak up for those people instead of yourself? How often do you see that sort of thing happen? Very rare. The thing I really don't see happen is this last piece. Did so with the hopes of the person's repentance and prosperity. Just let that sink in for a minute. I'm going to respond to my mayor, senator, governor, president. And I'm not going to respond in criticism in hopes that they don't win the next election. 
I'm not going to respond in criticism in hopes that they get made fun of. I'm going to respond in hopes that they repent and God makes them prosperous. How life-bringing would political discourse be if this was the way we responded? How much peace and joy would there be if it was abundantly clear that our response to our rulers was done because we actually wanted to see them change? And just think about it for a second. And so if someone changes their mind in politics, what do you call them? A flip-flopper, right? You can't change your mind. I mean, if someone changed their mind, they're either a flip-flopper or they're a rhino or a dino, right? Republican or Democrat in name only, right? You can't change your mind. No, we should want them to change their mind, not just to not get elected next time. We should want them to change their mind and repent and for God to make them prosperous. Is that your framework? Is that what's the sort of thing going through your head when these sorts of conversations happen around you or on your social media? Do you come to it with this sort of mindset? of I genuinely want what's best for these people who are currently being criticized and being made fun of. I think that's a challenge for all of us. And the last challenge that we're not going to discuss in great detail at all, actually, this morning, is that we should pray for them. And I just want to mention it here because if you're responding often in criticism for your rulers, but you are not praying for them, I have a sneaking suspicion that you probably shouldn't be responding in criticism at all because you might not be doing it in the right spirit. And we're going to talk more about that next time I get up on a Sunday morning. But this is what we have to remember. We have to remember that God rules, and because God rules, we submit to our rulers, and we only choose not to when it's against God's rules. We criticize sinful behavior and laws, and we do it without partiality. We don't choose sides. We criticize sin without choosing sides, without self-seeking, we do it for the less fortunate and without disrespect. And we ought to pray for our rulers. The question I have for you this morning, as you're going to go into the next week and you're going to open up your social media account or you're going to talk to your friends or something like that, is what's the framework you bring to conversations about the government? What's going through your head? How do you think about it? How do you think to respond? Does it embody these things, acknowledging the fact that God is king? Or are you trying to do things your own way? I challenge you to think about those things. And if you want the prayers of the church to help you be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in these sorts of situations, we would love to pray with you. We would love to help you if you have a seat on the front pew as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.